chapter 1, session 3. Did Jesus go to college? So, God showed up on campus. A new campus fellowship was starting in my hometown, founded by none other than one of my pastors. Bethel Campus Fellowship, or BCF, was a vision given to Pastor George Uday. Uncle George, as we all called him, was a man I avoided. His life was constant conviction of my sinful state. As an evangelist, he had an unwavering call to bring young people to Christ. Since I was not ready to heed that call, his very presence was conviction. I avoided him like the plague. BCF was starting in North Carolina and will be coming to A&T, my parents' alma mater, and just 20 minutes from my hometown in Greensboro, and to NCCU, the university where I attended law school. I felt the pull of the Holy Spirit on my heart to be part of this ministry. So I attended their inaugural national conference in 2005. The vision was compelling and the message drew me in. There was a shift in my heart as I envisioned becoming an ambassador for Christ on my campus. I wanted to find my place among the gathering of young Christian leaders that would be spearheading this new campus fellowship across North America. The truth is that I was suffering from an overwhelming feeling of spiritual despondency and listlessness. I wanted more than what I had in my relationship with Christ. I was accustomed to partying Monday through Saturday, but I still went to church diligently every Sunday. I found myself searching for God in other people. I was drawn to those whose Christian faith seemed more mature than mine hoping they would divulge the secret of their faithfulness. I would pray and fast with my roommate on many occasions, all while never abandoning my sin. I knew I wanted to grow, but I thought there had to be a secret to spiritual fruitfulness, a secret that I did not yet have. It never occurred to me to go back to my Bible and to my roots, the parents and the church that had given me my first foundation of faith. I was searching for God in various places. Meanwhile, he was not lost. I was. Try as I may, I could never fully walk away from my faith, even as I lived the life of one who did not believe. In moments of deep confusion or pain, I would always turn to prayer. I was known to gather my friends to pray before each major milestone of our legal career. Like before our class finals and while we were preparing for the state bar. The inheritance of righteousness that my parents attempted to build for me probably kept me from going over the deep end completely. It always felt like God was calling out to me, but I did not know how to cultivate his presence in the privacy of my own room. The only time I knew the presence of God tangibly was at church conferences and revivals. But how do I make him stay? He felt exceptionally far away when I was just living my day-to-day life as a law student or even in my interactions with other people. The holiness of God did not sit with me when I was dating or cultivating romantic relationships with men. 
felt like God was in a box and he only wanted to visit when I was with certain believers in certain settings. Throughout law school, I was inexplicably drawn to young people who seemed like they had a special in with God. They would grow to be the men and women I know as ministers of the gospel today. Back then, all I knew was that they were special. I did not know why, but I wanted what they had. When I considered my reputation on campus, as I contemplated spreading the gospel through BCF, I was afraid. How could I possibly invite anyone from my law school to a Bible study with me? It would be a joke. I had lived notoriously on campus among my peers. Unless I was going to abandon every acquaintance, classmate, and associate I had encountered on campus and start a new life as a serious model of biblical Christian living, there was no way for me to find my place within the ministry. The pull, on God, the pull of God on my heart never relented, and I would feel a jolt of regret any time I met another believer who was living the life I could only dream about, a life that prioritized holiness and took the process of sanctification as a serious matter. Such a set-apart life seemed far-fetched for me. I had seen and done too much to ever be considered a woman of God, and I certainly had no business trying to lead anyone to Christ. Being left behind as the vision for BCF forged ahead without me would not be the last time that I felt out of place among true believers. I wished for a way to serve in ministry without betraying the reputation I had already developed as someone who liked to have a good time. A part of me believed that doing something meaningful in ministry would make up for my years of wild living, but it was not meant to be. The fear of being branded a hypocrite by trying to lead anyone to Christ was too gripping to allow me to entertain the thought of turning over a new leaf. This was who I was, among me the party girl. The sooner I embraced it, the better off life would be for everyone, especially me. My desires to serve God were severely hindered by my fear of men. If people really knew what kind of woman I had been all of my years as a churchgoer, I was convinced that they would judge me swiftly and dismiss me from any duties that required me to minister to others. Who ever heard of ministering to others when your own life was in such deep need of deliverance. I held ministers of the gospel to a higher standard than the one my life reflected. So by my own summation, I was unqualified for leadership within any church or fellowship that preached the gospel as its primary function. I remember attending Christian fellowship meetings on campus with the hope of connecting with like-minded believers. I always walked away dis dissatisfied because these gatherings did nothing to challenge the sin that was running rampant in my life. I came to these gatherings looking for deliverance from bondage and a new start, and would be met with people who knew nothing about my life, but told me I was okay, just the way I was. I was okay? Their answer, or maybe what they call being compassionate at the expense of preaching the true gospel, left me with no hope. Because if all I was with my dysfunctional relationship and my brokenness was all that God wanted me to be, he was not going to change me. I was stuck in the life that made me deeply unhappy 
and will be better off not praying or hoping for God to transform the parts of my character that kept leading me towards destruction. What drew me to BCF also told me that I was not qualified to be a leader, at least not without a serious change of heart. BCF preached the gospel and censored holiness as a requirement for every believer that called on the name of Christ. There was no salvation without repentance. I knew I could not enter into leadership within a ministry such as this one while my life was in such shambles and I was in such deep bondage to sin. Rather than taking it as an opportunity to repent, I disqualified myself and kept going down the path of disobedience. It was easier than turning around. I would walk away from the possibility of doing ministry on campus and comforted myself with supporting those who were better suited for the work, like my brother. He was the good one. It makes sense for him to lead a campus ministry, and he did. At A&T as a graduate student, holding Bible studies in his campus apartment until graduation. In law school, I continued to waver between giving credence to the Holy Spirit's pull on my heart and the desires of my flesh. I was no longer accustomed to saying no to the things I wanted. I did whatever my natural self or flesh wanted to do. Consequences be damned. I had several, this is going to the grave with me, moments in those three years of school. I had spent the last several years of my life since high school doing whatever I wanted. I still believed in Christ, but coming from a sheltered life to life in college and law school where I could do whatever I wanted changed me beyond anything I could have expected. By the time I graduated law school at the age of 23, I was a long way away from the 16-year-old girl who had rededicated her life back to the Lord. I had seven years of life lived in the fastest lane possible. I had pushed and tested every boundary ever established for me, some beyond repair. I had befriended and courted people who had no inkling of my same background of being raised in a church and instructed to be good. I thought their unhindered, unencumbered existence that was free of every rule, except do what makes you happy, was the true definition of freedom. I did not realize that the version of freedom I had embraced held nothing but bondage for me and my future. In my last year of law school, I became restless. I was a few months from graduation and was growing bored with the monotony of my life. I was ready for a new romance. Really, a new anything would have done, but men were my most available resource. So I started dating again. One night, while out with a good friend, we ran into an acquaintance that was literally the same age as my dad's youngest brother. By all definitions, he should have been out of my league. But for the first time ever, I saw possibility. I saw potential. Rather than respecting the boundaries drawn by cultural norms, I ignored them. After all, someone finally gave me the attention and the adventure I had been craving. I probably would have married him within the first three months of our relationship if he had asked, and I thought I could get away with it. I would have had to move far away from my parents to escape their wrath had I done such a thing. 
Within three months of this relationship, I believe God was showing me that this connection was a far cry from whom he intended for me to be. All signs were pointing me to the fact that I was severely backsliding in my choice in pursuing this relationship. The fruit that we bore early on was rotten, and the growing need for godliness that had been rumbling in my heart just months before quickly disappeared with this new romance. Most of the pain we endured in that relationship was my own doing. I was operating with no boundaries in place. I did, said, or thought whatever I wanted based on what was going to bring me the most immediate gratification. I had no thought about future consequences. If it made me happy in the moment, that was all I needed. Our relationship was practically made in heaven or hell considering my own lack of godliness. While I was in school and away from my family, there was nobody to scrutinize us and I did whatever I pleased. Once my family got wind of our relationship though, there was hell to pay. They did not approve. First, I was heartbroken. Then I was indignant. And lastly, I was resolute. If no one would accept the man that made me happy, then I would stay in the relationship and yes, even marry him just to spite them. For the length of our relationship, I kept our commitment alive by sheer stubbornness. No matter who had anything negative to say, I shut my ears to their counsel. Little by little, God began to open my eyes. The quirks that I saw as no big deal began to spell disaster for our future together. The v- differences that seemed like minor variants in our upbringing began to show me just how incompatible we were. The main thing we had in common was my sin. Had I been in a place of obedience to God or living by my God-given convictions, the span between us would have been worlds apart. But in my compromised state, my unrepentant heart matched evenly with his own rebelliousness. As long as I was unsubmitted to God and living life by my own standards, we had everything in common. But the minute I began to grow in godliness or conviction regarding spiritual matters, the space between us widened. Before long, I moved out of my apartment at school and I went back home with my parents after graduation, which meant I was back in my home church. I could not escape the truth of the gospel anymore like I had been able to do at school. People who cared deeply about the state of my spiritual life and would not allow me to destroy myself without doing their best to instruct me in the right way to go, surrounded me. I was being convicted daily by the truth of God's word. Even my pastors took special interest in my love life. They made sincere attempts to guide me towards biblical standards for relationships. Everyone's advice and counseling, and I'm sure their prayers too, began to work their way into my heart, and I found myself changing in small but dramatic ways. I was no longer comfortable with a relationship whose foundation was built on sin. I wanted a godly romance ordained by God and founded on Christ. I knew I did not deserve one, considering my past, but my rebellious heart was transforming before my eyes. With each new day, My heart opened more to the truth of God's word. I no longer wanted a relationship or marriage where God was not at the center. I started teaching Sunday school. 
I started singing in the choir. Saturday nights, once spent club hopping with my boyfriend, became quiet nights at home, preparing for Sunday school or for the next day praise and worship. Before long, I stopped partying altogether. I wanted something new, something meaningful, something more. I began to grow spiritual roots, but as I drew closer to God, I drew further away from my boyfriend. My heart towards my family also began to soften. When my childhood friend, Evelyn, celebrated her wedding and I saw how proud and joyous her parents were at her union, I cried like a baby. Her union made them proud. I wanted my marriage and my husband to make my family proud too, but I feared I had already blown my chance. My boyfriend and I were talking about engagement rings. We had been together for two years and five months. A proposal was coming any day. It was as sure as judgment day itself. Little did I know a new beginning was coming. I was about to be born again. I will never forget my salvation story for as long as I live. I was standing in a sanctuary with a few hundred young adults between the ages of 13 and 30. I heard a sermon that gripped me with the truth that hundreds of sermons have reiterated in the previous 26 years of my life. God is a God of justice and every human being will give an account for his or her obedience or disobedience to his word. The exact words were, the word of God will either change you or hold you accountable. Pastor Bruce Goodwin, Light City Church, Glendale, Maryland. It was as if my spirit stood on its feet. I was absolutely gripped. A holy terror came on me like nothing else I have ever felt. It was as if I was standing in the presence of the lion and the lamb. There was only one adequate response, repentance. I ran to the altar and turned my back on every other lover for good. The next day, God called me out of the relationship that had been born out of my unmet need to be validated by men, as if I was parking and fueled by my fear of not being good enough for anyone else. To put it frankly, my relationship of over two years was incompatible with my new life with Christ. I called the man I had said I loved just two days prior and broke both of our hearts. I had already shed my own tears when I heard the instructions from the Holy Spirit. I fought it initially. Breaking us up meant possibly losing a friend. His sisters and I were still friends. Breaking up with him meant distancing myself from the family that had embraced me as one of their own for the last decade. Breaking up with this man meant disappointing and breaking the heart of someone who had only done what I asked of him, love me. I was about to throw a bomb into our lives as we knew it, and there would be no going back to the life we both knew before. The aftermath would leave jagged pieces that were dangerous enough to cut anyone that got too close. I could not imagine doing such a thing to us 
but I also knew that God would never take anything out of my hand without outdoing himself in the aftermath. God would never ask me to sacrifice a relationship so deeply forged if he intended the past to be the best I could have. I knew our relationship had to be outside the will of God for my life. The fruit we bore as a couple was rotten. I did not even expect God to redeem what I had begun without his blessing. When the scales fell from my eyes, I knew the relationship I had cherished for those past years was a godless one. It could not coexist with my new life in Christ. Sacrificing what I consider love was my first act of obedience to God, the God who had been wooing me my entire life. I had been waiting on God to change my life. Meanwhile, he had been waiting on me to surrender. So, I opened my hand and let the relationship I once cherished drop from my hands, genuinely believing that God will replace it with his perfect will for my life. I cried. Oh, how I cried. I imagined being hated by my soon-to-be ex-boyfriend and his family. I kicked myself for ignoring all the different warning signs that had been apparent over the last two years of our relationship. If I had listened within the first month, severing the ties between us would not have been such a big deal. But two years later, when we were staring engagement and marriage in the face, it was catastrophic, or so I thought. But God kept assuring me that it was his will for my life for the relationship to end. By the time I made the phone call, my face was set as flint. I'm sure I sounded cold and removed when I delivered a life-altering news to my partner of 29 months. But there was more at stake than our feelings. Eternity was at hand. His response was to be expected. He was shocked. Then he was heartbroken. Then he was devastated. I maintained my composure as I literally told him that God was breaking us up. I had been praying about our relationship for months, even years. The no from God was the clearest answer I have ever had. A year prior, a self-proclaimed prophet told me that she saw me crying and asked me what was causing the heartbreak. I told her that I wanted my relationship to work, but everyone else was against it. She as good as told me to do what made me happy. And I have forged ahead happily, unknowingly on the highway to hell, living a life that was in direct opposition to God's will for me. I had clung to that prophecy as hope that God would save my relationship and make me happy. But it was not a word from the Lord. It was a word from my flesh. And it only confirmed what my wicked heart was already set on doing. When I gave up my will for God's, I found the joy that had eluded me for 26 years prior. Since that day in that sanctuary in Glendale, Maryland, at Christ Apostolic Church Bethel Fellowship, nothing in my life has ever been the same. I always thought coming to Christ meant having my struggles disappear instantly. Miraculously, many of them did. Goodbye addiction to alcohol, goodbye lust, goodbye low self-esteem. Hello, regenerated heart and transformed mind. 
I was about to discover that some deliverance would only come as I continued the process of working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. The difference between my years as a true believer in Christ and my years as a churchgoer are mind-boggling. Where I had previously struggled to say no when friends invited me into tempting situations, as a believer, God changed my desires. He gave me a love for righteousness and a distaste for sin. In fact, the places that I used to frequent for entertainment began to look more like minefields of demonic activity. The first time I entered a club as a believer, I saw everything with new eyes. I went to visit a friend on her birthday, and she insisted over my objections that clubbing would be fun. The outing so violated my conscience that she remarked that I looked miserable for the entire night. We barely stayed an hour. In my short time in the club, I was seeing with spiritual eyes what I had only seen previously as people having a good time. Lust, violence, drunkenness, self-loathing, pride. All the vices I could imagine were operating in real time all around me. For someone who had been in dozens of clubs hundreds of times, this new view of party life was shocking. I never stepped foot in another club after that. As a new believer, my conscience was so sensitive to any violations of God's standards that I would cry when I saw people living bound to sin. I was also angry with other believers whose conduct or proclamations were misleading and dishonest representations of the gospel of Christ. I had such a weighty fear of God that when I sinned against one of my sisters, I lied to her. I was heartbroken for days until I confessed. What was the lie? I had sent her an anonymous note about the dangers of one of her relationships. I had no peace until I confessed that it was me who wrote the note. Being in Christ turned my entire life on its head in the best way possible. My transformation also leaked online in the age of social media. For a girl who had been so vocal about my worldliness, I could not equally keep quiet about my salvation. Everything was new and exciting to me. I was so eager to share it all. Eventually, after I turned my page into the Jesus channel, nothing but scripture, devotionals, and worship music, one of my Facebook friends told me point blank that I was doing too much and it didn't take all that to be saved. Bless her heart. I could not contain my joy in Christ, even if I wanted to. It did not dawn on me before that the name of Jesus could be so irritating to others. When I was posting half-naked pictures and ranting and raving like a lunatic about other people's offenses against me, my Facebook friend had no issue with that. But my inability to keep quiet about my newfound freedom in Christ was, quote, doing too much. To quote a wise sage, make it make sense. For the first time in my life, I realized that someone's negative opinion did not bother me. What mattered was my obedience to Christ. I continued to share my faith and document my transformation online. My new life in Christ changed all my relationships. There was a new hunger for authenticity in my dealings with everyone in my life. Starting with my parents. After coming to Christ and coming home, I immediately went to my mother and asked her forgiveness for any of my past rebellion and disobedience. 
I told her that I finally understood what she had been trying for 26 years to teach me. My days of sneaking out of the house, breaking curfew, and going out drinking with friends were over. Thankfully, I have a godly mother. Her example has always been geared towards making me more like Christ. Anything she did in her parenting was her best attempt at making me a woman after God's own heart. Because of the purity of her love and the sincerity of her faith in Christ, my mom did not abuse her position as someone I am commanded to honor as part of my reasonable service to God. Although we were already close, our relationship became that much more enjoyable after I truly gave my heart to the Lord. We became more than mother and daughter. We became friends. Thanks mostly to the fact that I no longer had anything to hide from her. My friendships were transformed as well. I suddenly had a burning desire for all my friends to know Christ for themselves. The ones who were already in church, I encouraged them to dig deeper. Find the places in their lives where they had previously attempted to keep God out of it and let him have his way. For some, it was in their sexuality. They were believers who were having sex. That revelation was mind-boggling to me as a baby believer. The conviction of God was so heavy if I even glanced at something inappropriate or lustful. How could anyone talk less of a believer in Christ be comfortable while violating God's standard for sexual purity? By God's grace, I was able to remember he who spared my own life when I was in rampant disobedience and extend that same grace to others. I walked my loved ones through my own journey of sexual integrity, which had led to me finally living out God's standards in all areas of my life, including my purity. As a single woman, God's standard for my purity meant abstinence until marriage and purity in my dealings with men. For those that were either not in Christ or not in church, my only strategy was to love them as extravagantly as Christ had loved me. Jesus did not wait until I was perfect before granting me his love and saving me by his grace. I would not wait until others were perfected before I showed them the love of God. I prayed specifically and knowingly for my friends who were not believers. For the first time in our friendships, their eternity mattered more to me than any other aspect of our friendship. Before long, these friends began to seek me out for prayer or advice about one thing or another. I believe God softened their hearts toward the gospel, and many of them now have their own solid relationship with the Lord. My romantic life was radically transformed. Given the fact that God yanked me by my collar out of a serious relationship within the same 24 hours after I came to Christ, I knew romance was out of the question for me for a long time. I had too much to do and undo as it concerned my relationship with men before I would be ready for any kind of commitment. I was also determined that my next relationship would be my last. Whatever man would get my attention this time around was required to be the man God wanted me to marry. If not, I did not want him. I would wait. I was no longer interested in dating until God himself assured me that I was ready for marriage. As someone who had to relearn how to interact with men with a focus on purity, I became very anti-dating, calling the entire exercise unbiblical. 
The book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was a cherished resource. After 10 years on the market, I also wanted to kiss dating goodbye. But my enthusiasm was misdirected. What God used as his process for sanctifying me and calling me deeper into relationship with him, I tried to turn into a mandate for all Christians. In my newly saved mind, no Christian should be dating, period. We should all wait patiently until God brought our spouse. I was not willing to date anyone until God assured me that it was his spirit leading me. That relationship would materialize 18 months later. In the time in between, two previous boyfriends were married within months of each other. Countless numbers of college friends, law school friends, and church friends also celebrated their unions. I was happy for them, and I knew that my turn would come one day. For the first time in all of my years of attending Nigerian weddings, I began to see a difference in the type of weddings that were happening in my community. Couples who married because they were in love and because it was time, not necessarily because they had a God-given vision for their marriage, celebrated their union with a focus on having a good time and nothing else. Those who married in Christ seemed to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just into their ceremony, but into their forthcoming marriage. By my own observation, there was a difference between those who married with Christ in mind and those who married with him as an afterthought. The differences I observed gave me a desire to cultivate a marriage that was set apart from the world's standard of doing things. But I knew such a marriage would not just fall into my lap. It had to be God-ordained and specially cultivated by my choice to engage in the type of romantic relationship that centered Christ more than it did my own feelings. That was all well and good for other Christians living in America. But for single Nigerians such as myself, there was an added layer of complexity in the search for our spouse. Our parents and elders desperately wanted to see us married. If you were single, they wanted you married. If you were married, they wanted you to have children. If you had children, they wanted you to have more. But in your quest to become married, if, as a Nigerian young adult, you did not follow the path that had been forged by our predecessors, you were in for a world of trouble. The same parents who prayed that we will all marry when the time comes would have been appalled if any of my fellow young Nigerians attempted to do it out of our parents' prescribed sequence. The time to get married was after you have completed your first degree and you were either in graduate or professional school, or newly graduated, or you were in your first well-paying job after college graduation, and you were looking towards securing a master's or professional degree, like medical, pharmacy, dentistry, or law. Their timeline for marriage centered on being done with school, working, and with a set future plan in the works getting married before our parents considered us established would have resulted in a world of trouble. When my non-Nigerian friends tell me their stories of meeting their spouses as teenagers and getting married right after high school, I am always amazed. 
not only at the sovereignty of God to write such diverse and beautiful love stories for each of his children, but also because doing such a thing as a Nigerian would have been a suicide mission. Regardless of how Holy Spirit-filled you happen to be, try telling any Nigerian parent that God wants you to marry your intended spouse at the age of 18, 19, or 20. And I can assure you that they will swiftly reply that God did not instruct them to release you to marriage when you were barely old enough to legally buy alcohol or rent a vehicle without being penalized for your age. But I honestly believe that God does not waste anything. If God had no use for my Nigerian heritage, he was free to create me as another nationality and within another culture. But he chose to make me Nigerian. And he is well aware that our parents would have several questions if we were to attempt to enter the covenant of marriage before the age that they deem it appropriate. Sometimes our parents' concerns are God's way of teaching us to honor the boundaries he has put in place. If our parents' desires do not contradict God's specific and revealed will for us, I believe he wants us to honor them. Our parents also had a preference as to who to marry as a Nigerian. The preferred option is usually another Nigerian young adult whose background is easily verified. The friend of a family friend, a church member, or any other Nigerian whose family could be easily investigated without much effort. Bonus points if the partner of choice happens to be of the same tribe. I truly believe that my parents' desire held some weight in my desire to marry another Yoruba Nigerian. Naturally, I was more attracted to Yoruba men. I use the past tense because now I only have eyes for one Yoruba man, the one who gave me his last name. Hey, babe. And it makes sense that God who created me as a Yoruba woman would give me an innate desire to be with someone from my same culture. But long before I knew my husband as my husband, our families made sense together. His mom was one of my favorite women in our church, and she treated me like a daughter long before we shared a last name. His dad and mine were practically inseparable. His younger brothers and I shared cherished memories of growing up in our church youth group together as teenagers. When I zoom out of our lives and look around, he and I together seems logical. I believe all our parents wanted to see us happily married in their lifetime. And that was why they pushed so forcefully for us to settle down once we reach the age of majority and were done with school. When I found myself single and loving it at the age of 26, I'm sure I must have seemed like an enigma to the watching elders in my life. I was not in a hurry, even if they were. I was growing in Christ thriving in friendships, and finding my pace in ministry. It was the best time of my life. Despite the opinions of others about what it meant to be single at my age, I was at peace. Still, older believers started attempting to disturb that peace. When are you getting married? We want to tie Gilly for your own wedding. Where is the man? Should we be praying that God should send him? Don't wait too long, go. You know you want to start having children before it's too late. On and on, they would comment 
at every wedding, engagement party, or wedding Thanksgiving celebration. My single friends and I became the target of long-winded opinions about our lack of a love life. It was annoying. I was finally in Christ after years of sitting on the fence between the gospel and the world. I was experiencing exponential growth as a believer and receiving so much new revelation from God. But all anyone wanted to talk about was my empty ring finger. Thankfully, God had been assuring me of my identity the entire time. So other people's nosiness did nothing to disturb the peace of God in my life. I took it all in stride, smiled, and walked away in most cases. I knew my love story was still being written by God, and I would not compromise. I wasn't going to let go of his expected end for my life just because other folks were in a hurry. In my single years as a believer, there were a couple of men who vied for my attention, but God dismissed them before they made any progress with me. One was the brother-in-law of a church friend. He was 30 and searching for love, ready to settle down, although still finding his way in his chosen career. We never met in person, but we exchanged emails and Facebook messages for about two months. He even went the extra mile of sending me flowers and a beautiful leather-bound journal on Valentine's Day, which was about two months after we started conversing. I thought he was sweet. He had a nice personality, and his faith in Christ seemed genuine and growing. But I could not shake the feeling that he did not want me as much as he wanted what I could provide for him. Through no fault of his own, his sister-in-law told me, when she was attempting to sell me on his charm, that he was desperately looking to relocate to the United States from Nigeria and would be willing to marry anyone who could provide him with such an opportunity. She later recanted and explained that he was genuinely looking for a relationship that would lead to marriage. It would just be an added benefit if the woman he was to marry was already in the United States. Try as she might, she could not redeem him in my eyes. His presence was forever tainted by the knowledge that he would marry anyone for the opportunity to relocate to the United States. I did not want to be anyone. We had weeks of friendly conversation and got to know each other as fellow believers. His Valentine's Day gesture endeared him to me. But as soon as he asked if we could move our relationship beyond just friendship, I pumped the brakes and put a hard stop to our exchanges. As much as I enjoyed talking to him, I did not feel comfortable with him and did not see myself agreeing to anything beyond what was established, at least not for the next several months. We parted as friends. One month later, my husband asked me on our first date. Earlier in my 18 months of singleness in Christ was another potential suitor. He was a friend of our mutual friend. Maud was a sister I had known for almost four years at that point. The guy in question lived out of state so once again, we communicated largely by phone. Because we were introduced earlier in my salvation journey, probably within the first year, if I'm remembering correctly, I was still very leery of too much familiarity with men. I did not want to end up back on the same road that led me astray. Anyway, the person in question was a Yoruba guy of the same age. He was very active in his church and a part of the singles ministry. The only thing that got him crossed off my shortlist was a habit he demonstrated within the first day of our introduction. 
My friend introduced us by putting us on the phone with each other, but we never met in person. After he got my number, our first conversation was hours long. Although I did not initially mind the length of the phone call, I thought it was inappropriate for someone who had just met me to keep me on the phone for hours. He had no idea what my schedule entailed or what kind of work I needed to get done. He just got on the phone and talked and talked and talked until the entire day was spent. I was willing to allow it on the first day because I figured we were attempting to get to know each other. But when he called me back the second day and stayed on the phone, even though I told him of all the different things I needed to accomplish for that day, I decided enough was enough. I told him point blank that monopolizing my time the way he was doing was inappropriate, especially for someone who just met me. We had no expectations or goals marked out yet. We were not committed to each other or looking to marry one another because at that point we were pretty much strangers. That level of time he was taking up in my schedule did not commiserate with his place in my life. He was an acquaintance at best, the friend of a friend. Yet he was taking great liberties with my time by keeping me occupied on the phone in the middle of the workday for hours. Those types of liberties were reserved for my parents, my brother, my best friends, and one day, the man I would marry, which he was not. I likely offended him, which was not my intention. But by the same token, my priority was setting boundaries, not necessarily coddling anyone's feelings. When he stopped calling, I took it as a good sign. God was moving him out of the way. I was very protective of my time. I knew how badly I had allowed myself to be manipulated in the past by men who said all the right things or appeared genuinely interested in me because they gave me their time. What I had failed to grasp in those past relationships was that my time was valuable as well. I should not have allowed anyone to waste it. I should not have allowed it to be wasted by men who talked a good game but never rose to the occasion. I was not going to let that happen again. If this suitor was the kind of man I wanted, he would know why it was important not to create such emotional bonds and connections where no commitment has been spoken or was to be expected. And the fact that he was offended by my faithfulness to God's standard for my new life in Christ told me we would never be a match. As my fellow Nigerians would say, good riddance to bad rubbish. Being single and finding myself thriving was such an unexpected joy. For the first time in my adult life, I did not crave a man's attention. Cliché as it sounds, I was satisfied with Jesus alone. I do not want to minimize the experiences of women who find themselves faithfully serving and growing in Christ, but they remain single year after year and decade upon decade, while genuinely still desiring marriage. Just because my time of singleness was so short-lived does not mean I have any answers as to how to get a husband. Marriage was and is a gift from God, and so is singleness. Different gifts, same God. There was a time where being single was so enjoyable, it would take a truly remarkable happening for me to give up the joy and fruitfulness in my life in exchange for something else. For me, a relationship that did not trump what I had as a single woman would not have moved me or convinced me to change my status. Wholeness in Christ gave me a distaste for dysfunction. 
If it did not look like what Jesus promised, I did not want it. I have finally witnessed what whole thriving marriages look like in the kingdom of God. And I was spoiled forever by that exposure. I could no longer accept a relationship or marriage that did not prioritize Christ or did not pattern itself after the sacrifice of Christ and the submission of his bride. The men that got my attention in the past no longer had a shot in this lifetime or the next. Coming to Jesus ruined me for men in the best way possible. It was a good thing too, because I had a lot of healing to do. We have come to the end of chapter one. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll pick up next time with chapter two, love, lust, and the messy stuff. Have a great week.